Welcome to episode 45 of the Base Shed Podcast. My name is Ryan Roberts. Hey folks, on the episode is Chuck Kreiner. Chuck Kreiner is the brother of bassist Bob Babbitt, Motown legend, um, you know, known for his his work in Detroit with The Temptations, with Smokey Robinson, uh, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder. Uh, you know, then he moved on. He played with Phil Collins. He did session player. But after Motown split, he went to the East Coast, went to uh, New York, then down into Nashville. We're going to talk about all this, but this we're going to talk about it with his brother, Chuck Kreiner. And this is going to be the first of a two-part tribute to Bob Babbitt. And I'll be speaking with Bob Babbitt's brother, Chuck, and Bob Babbitt's son, Joe Kreiner. Uh, and we will talk about that a little bit more in a second. D. Lakin Bases, founder of Lakeland Bases, Dan Lakin, has a new company, and I'm honored to be a part of the D. Lakin family. I co-designed a five-string fretless with Dan uh, and his design team that base is inspired by... That is the inspired by Ryan Roberts base. The, the number is the 5-6035. I spoke with Dan last week. Uh, and that base is off to be rounded and painted. Routed and painted. Um, actually, I spoke with him last week about that. That's when he told me that. I, I spoke with him earlier today, actually. And I'm like, dude, what do you think about a matte finish, huh? Like, I'm kind of into the matte finish. Uh, <laughs> Dan Lakin was not a fan of the matte finish. <laughs> uh, yeah, what he had to say about it, I'm not going to repeat on the mic, but it was hilarious. So that base is underway. Uh, Dan is also doing a base giveaway, and the first prize is your custom base. The first prize winner will connect with Dan and the design team, and they will build you the base of your dreams. Stop by www.dlakenbases.com to learn more about how to enter. Also, check out Dan's Amp Shop. Five brands you can't get on Sweetwater or Guitar Center. Demeter, Trickfish, DNA, Gensler, and Epiphany. Personally, I'm a fan of Epiphany. I, I play them. Love it. Love it. Uh, I did play Gensler on a gig a couple weeks ago in Seattle. I played their heads. Fantastic. That was the first time I played a Gensler head. And uh, no issues. No issues. I had, a, I had a good time with it. Uh, and I used it on Upright and Electric. So that's that's my time spent with Gensler. You can get those from Dan's Amp Shop. Go to www.dlakenbases.com. All products have a 30-day guarantee, and Dan will pay for shipping both ways. If you are a double bassist, you will want to check out Lemur Music, everything for the double bass. Head to lemurmusic.com. Uh, I've been a customer of Lemur Music since I started playing the upright, and I'm honored to have partnered with them. I'll be sharing more about that uh, probably on the ne next episode. I'm Later this week, I'm headed down to Lemur to meet with the folks there and uh, exchange some information that I will be talking about on the next podcast Um yeah, to let you guys know about the partnership I have with Lemur. But go to www.lemurmusic.com for all your double bass accessories, strings, sheet music, and more. Lemurmusic.com.
The Bayshed website is dedicated to the artistry of bass legends and how we can broaden stylistic vocabulary by learning and analyzing the work of these legends. Um, I also get emails regularly about folks wanting to study privately with me. So if you're not quite into doing the transcription thing, um, although I'm, I'm a big advocate for it, honestly, uh, I transcribe a lot. Uh, that's kind of the nature of what's up on the website right now is just the transcriptions uh, and all the analysis of it. Um, but if you want to learn some other things, some technical things, some theoretical things, some conceptual approaches to improvising, uh, shoot me an email at ryan at the uh, I am offering a free trial lesson with every lesson sign up. Um, if, if it's not, if you're not feeling it after the trial, all good. Let me know and I will re- reimburse you for the lesson that you did sign up for. Uh, but hit me up at Ryan at the Let me know what you're working on. Let me know what you'd like to be working on. Or you can visit the backslash private dash lessons. All right. As I mentioned on the episode today is Chuck Kreiner. Chuck Kreiner is the brother of studio bassist and Motown legend Bob Babbitt. Bob Babbitt's birth name was Robert Kreiner. So Chuck is his blood brother. And the way this came about is I got an email from Chuck. Uh, him, Chuck, and Bob Babbitt's son, Joe Kreiner, had come across the base shed. And Chuck emailed me uh, just simply saying like, hey, I'm Bob Babbitt's brother. Uh, you know, noticed you had some stuff about him on the base shed. Just checking it out cool. Uh, I quickly emailed Chuck back and like, man, this is fantastic. You know, uh, I'd love to talk to you. I got to, I got a, I got the chance to talk to him on the phone, uh, just kind of checking in and uh, just meeting him. And the same thing happened with Bob Babbitt's son, Joe, just had a, just both actually pretty long conversations, hour and a half, two hours, somewhere in there with each of them. And, um, just learning, learning about, uh, their brother, Chuck's brother and and Joe's dad, Bob Babbitt, and hearing stories and, and just covering different different attributes of of Bob. And uh, so I decided to have both of them on a two episode tribute to Bob Babbitt. Bob Babbitt is one of my favorite bass players. Um and we, we discuss a lot. Me and Chuck discuss the family history. Um, I really got curious about kind of the, the cultural influence of the family. And I talk about that more towards the end of my talk here with Chuck. Um, we talk about the musical environment that was happening at the house while Chuck and Bob were growing up. We talk about Bob's early influence, Bob's move to Detroit. Chuck shares stories about Bob being on the road with Stevie Wonder and stories about Bob uh, with Smokey Robinson. And it's fantastic. There's there's, there's just a lot of great, great stuff here. And Chuck is Chuck is all heart. And it's such a pleasure to connect with him. And and Chuck, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, Chuck is all heart and Joe is all heart. And I can only imagine that Bob, Bob was all heart. And, and from listening to to their accounts of their time with Bob Babbitt, uh, absolutely was just all heart. And we can clearly hear that and feel that in his playing. Um, so this is this is the first episode of a two part tribute to Bob Babbitt. And this is my talk with Bob Babbitt's brother, Chuck Kreiner. Yeah. An early starter, man. <laughs> <laughs> Not, I normally wouldn't be. I normally wouldn't be. I, uh, I can't remember the last time I woke up this early. No, the last time, 
I woke up this early was a couple weeks ago. I had a gig in Seattle and we had to be in the lobby to leave Seattle at 545. Oh, geez. and that was that was brutal. Then I got home after the flight. I got back to L.A. and just slept all day. So I'll probably go back and take a nap after this. <laughs> if I got up that early, I'd be napping. Yeah. Time during the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How's it going over there in uh, Chapel Hill? Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. What's Been it like over there? Since last August. Okay. Where were you at before that? Uh, Northern Virginia, an area called Woodbridge, about 20 miles south of D.C. Okay. And there are a lot. God, we were there since 72, 73. Okay. Uh, uh, you worked in the airline industry, right? So is there yes. a lot of industry in Northern Virginia for that? Right. Well, okay. our headquarters was in DC, at the D.C. airport. Okay. Washington National Airport, which is really in Virginia. Oh. No, it's called Washington National. Yeah. But most folks, we had a big operation in Pittsburgh, so most folks thought that was our headquarters, but it was it was DC. Oh uh, yeah, getting into Pittsburgh. You were born in Pittsburgh, correct? Were you born? Yeah. yeah right. Okay. Yes. Ended up go, going coincidentally. My first, I got into sales. And my first job was in Detroit. Okay. Okay. I can already see the parallels to your brother here. Really? <laughs> yeah. Matter of fact, we both went to Detroit after we got out of high school. Okay. Okay. So let's start. Let's start. We'll, let's, we'll come back to that. I will uh, tell you that my father was born in, uh, in Slovakia. Yeah. And when he came to you, his last name was very confusing. Uh, typical European spelling. Okay. So that he had his name changed. So I always said he he changed his name from a confusing Slovakian name yeah. to a confusing Americanized name. <laughs> <laughs> what was what was the given name? What was the original Slovakian name? Oh, it, it, it's pronounced Kranjak. Okay. But the spelling is off the wall. Sure. It's like I, I wouldn't even try. Yeah. And bizarre is that one of his brothers changed his name differently. He had okay. A different, he had a different last name than uh, <laughs> That's funny. Uh, that's funny only because of your brother changing his last name uh, professionally. Oh, yeah. You, you know, so I, there's already some family parallels there that are happening generationally. Um, so when when did your parents move here to the States? Well, they were always, I shouldn't say they were always here. My mother was born in the States. Okay. Her parents were both from Budapest, Hungary. Oh, okay. Yeah. My father was born in Slovakia. Okay. Yeah. And then he came here at what age? Well, I was born. Oh, his age? He yeah. was in his teens. Okay. He didn't get his U.S. citizenship, which I have excuse me, the certificate of his citizenship until he was 30. Oh, wow. Took a while. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, your mom and dad, they meet, and there was four children, correct? Yes. There's four of you. Three boys and a girl. Yeah. And Uh, so Bob was the oldest. Oldest. I was next. 
Then our sister was the third, and our brother was the youngest, the fourth. Okay. Okay. Um, cool. And so in the house, your mother was uh, would listen to a lot of Hungarian classical music. Yes. Yeah. She up. was a singer and a performer. Yeah. She performed in Hungarian musical theater. Okay. Uh, my father sang too, but he wasn't as good as my mother. Sure. Sure. So then she, your mom, your mother was a performer. So what were some of your early memories going to these performances? Well, she, she was a performer before she was married and maybe a little bit after. So okay. I was too young. I never saw any of her performances. Okay. Except, uh, we had a local, um, a park called Kennywood, an amusement park. Yeah. And one of the promotions they had were annual nationality days. Okay. Hungarian Day, Italian Day, German Day. So she always performed and I did see her then. Okay. Hungarian Day. Okay. Okay. So, so that was a big, that culture was relevant in your household in a big way. Like it was very... Yeah. Your mom, yeah, was really kind of proud of that uh, Hungarian heritage. Yeah, a lot of music. That my mother had a, and I guess my father too had a, a huge collection of Hungarian records. That okay, were always playing, always on. Yeah, and we heard it. We grew up with that music um, as young as young children. Okay. And then did, did your mom also play piano too, to accompany herself? Well, later in life, she played, not, not in the beginning. She okay. Learned, well, after our father passed away, she would have been maybe probably in her 40s. Yeah. When um, I bought her a piano okay. and, and she, she learned and, and was able to play. The rest okay. Of the life. Just self-taught. Um. Did she I'm take not lessons? Certain. I wasn't around when she was learning. Okay. I don't know if she taught herself or actually had lessons. I have a feeling she had lessons. Okay. Oh, she more than likely did. Her best friend was a piano player. Oh, okay. Another well, that makes sense. lady. Okay. Yeah. Okay. She probably learned from her. Yeah. Getting in, uh, you told me this story initially of Bob studying and practicing late in the kitchen to what they would call back then race music. Yes. Um, was that also played when Bob wasn't practicing to it? Was that music played around the house? Not was so it, much. Not like okay. Hungarian music because he was the only one. Well, I listened to it also. Sure. But that, that music was on... Uh, in the wee hours of the morning, after the whole family had gone to bed, he'd, he'd turn the radio on we had in our kitchen, close yeah. the door, and practice his bass with that music. <laughs> I love that. But it was the kind of music we both, we both definitely both liked. Yeah. And I would listen to that station during the day. Okay. But and roughly, <laughs> roughly what year was that? Would have been mid fifties. Okay. Yeah. I have, my sister had a boyfriend who was a DJ mm. and he gave me a couple of cassettes of music from that era 
and you would not recognize any of the group names. Really? Most of them were like one hit wonders. Sure. Sure. Crazy names. And so your brother's playing that, and then you never, you never kind of followed in his footsteps. He started playing the bass, and you didn't necessarily uh, pick up a musical instrument, or did you a little bit? I tried in school. Okay. Uh, in mid- middle school, seventh grade, uh, I tried the clarinet. Okay. Yeah, but I was totally non-musical. <laughs> I just always said I played at it. Yeah. Not on it. How about uh, how about the other siblings? My my younger brother, he also played clarinet. And okay. He was a little more into it. Yeah. He had his own. He bought his own clarinet. Clarinet. I never did. Okay. Um, and my sister, I know she played violin. Uh, in the Pittsburgh school system, you, you were, there were music classes starting in middle school, which was the seventh through eighth and ninth grade. Okay. And she tried to violin, but I, I don't think she stuck at that too long. Sure. Well, my son is musically inclined, and he took the violin for a year when he was in sixth grade, just decided to get started in music with a violin, but he really wanted to play the drums. So okay. as he switched to drums next year, he's an excellent, very good drummer. Um, and up through, he's in his 50s now. Okay. He's played with various groups, not seriously, professionally, but just as a hobby. Yeah. You know, pastime. Okay. He still, he still has a set of drums. Nice. Um, nice. Um, so we're we're in the mid fifties. Bob is practicing uh, the bass in the kitchen, and then it was after he got out of high school. Well, around this time, you guys were both doing construction, correct? Yes, with our father, who was yeah. a, a plaster plaster construction. Uh, Bob worked more with my father than I did. Okay, he worked for like at least. Three of the uh, we were on vacation in the summer. Uh, he worked with our dad, and I, I worked one year. Okay, Bob, Bob worked at least three years with him. Yeah, yeah. Did Bob and your father have a uh, really tight relationship? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And I think Bob picked up his. He was a hard worker. Yeah, dedicated to, to music. Sure. Um, uh, as our father was um, a very capable uh, adept at his job. Yeah. So I think I think Bob picked, picked up some of that from the dad. Okay. Okay, and so he's kind of learning that trade, uh, and then she does it for three years, and then moves to Detroit. Right. And you're now you follow him to Detroit, not too long after. Correct. Yeah. Uh, now, when he's in Detroit, is he plugged into the music scene right away, or did it take him some time to get acclimated and find some musicians uh, when he gets to Detroit? I'm not sure, sure, Ryan, exactly how quickly, but where I knew very quickly. I don't know how quickly after he got there. He got with a group of guys 
who all lived in the same neighborhood and they were musicians and they formed the band. Yeah. And I think that they were the counts. Yeah. Um, so that was pretty soon after he got there. Okay. Okay. Then how long had he been to Detroit before you got there? Probably about two years. Okay. Yeah, because he graduated in 1955 and I graduated in 57. Okay. We both went. I really went there just to visit. Oh, really? For a little while, I figured maybe a couple of weeks. Yeah. Our uncle had gotten him the job in construction mm-hmm. in the first place up there. In okay. And sitting up there. Yeah. And he got me the job in construction working. Same job for Bob, same company. So sure. I stayed. I was there for a couple of years. And then I, I came back to Pittsburgh eventually. Okay. Um, had you ever had talks with your brother about he he spent all this time working in construction and he's he's kind of a musician and he's meeting musicians on the side. Was he um, being really proactive about becoming a professional musician or was it was he kind of just doing it on the side and he might have done construction as a profession? No, he did it. He did it with with the interest of playing it for his career. Okay. He, he loved it. He was into it. And he played as much as possible after during the evenings. Yeah. You know, with different groups. I mean, when he, he started with the counts and then I don't know, one day he's, he's in Detroit and he walks past, a, I don't know what kind of facility was, but the Royal terms were in existence then, the band. Mm-hmm. He heard them playing and he goes in and introduces himself. And they didn't have a basis, so mm-hmm. they hired him. Okay. And he played with those guys for at least three years. Yeah. And they charted, well, they, they recorded 11 or 12 songs, and about seven or eight of them charted. Okay. And, and of course, they did. They played before and they backed up. They got a session job with um, a popular guy out of Michigan. And I apologize. That's all right. His name is escaping me. I've heard of it a zillion times. Anyway, he became a recording band and his touring band. And Little Town Flirt was one of his big hits. Little Town Flirt? Say again. What was one of his big hits? Little town flirt. Little town. I'm gonna look it up right now and see if I can look it up while while we're on the. I apologize. Uh, no, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Little town. Del Shannon. Ah, yes, yes. Yeah, they played on on several of his big hits and plus, as I said, George. Yeah, and so that now now at this point, your brother's getting kind of a taste of it. He's on the charts. He's playing with this group, Del Shannon, who's a huge name at that time period. Yeah. Um, if I if I remember correctly, I think Runaway is Del Shannon's biggest hit. Yes, I think so, too. Um, but I remember I remember that song even from when I was a kid. Uh, like I can still hear that opening guitar uh, to Runaway, and that was the song that kind of got me into Del Shannon. And then I started listening to more of it, but I never, I never thought about who his band was. Um, and it was funny learning from you that that Bob was Bob was there, 
And that was him uh, on some of those old ones. Well, that that relationship and that experience recording with Bell really led him to do much more. And, and then for sure, try, try to develop that as his career. Yeah. And I believe he, he stopped working at the uh, construction job. Okay, so he was he was staying busy enough with Dell. Yeah. Uh, he spun off from that and, and began recording with all the studios in Detroit. Yeah. Except for Motown. Right. Were they were were they even around yet? They had started. Okay. Yeah, they were they were in business at that time. Yeah. Um, and. Um, he literally, on a lot of the things he played, as you know, a lot of people have heard, were with the Funk Brothers from Motown. Sure. Who were doing, you know, jobs outside outside of Motown, which they weren't supposed to do. Right. Um, they, and they talk about that in, in the documentary, Standing in the Shadows of Motown, how they got, they were told they were going to be uh, fired. Right, right. There's a funny scene from, I forget which one of the musicians said he was going to be fired twice because they fired him twice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he's, your brother's playing with Del Shannon, and then I know it's Stevie Wonder who uh, your brother started playing, Bob started playing with Stevie and was doing some road work with Stevie Wonder. And it was yes. Stevie that brought him into Motown as a studio musician. Yes, correct. Um, well, I got started working with Stevie because Barry Gordy uh, bought Golden World Studios, where Bob was recording and was under contract to Golden mm. World. So he automatically became a Motown employee when when Motown bought Golden World Studios. And right. his first job was was backing Stevie uh, on his touring band. Yeah, super early on in Stevie. Stevie must have been, what, 17? He was he was still in high school. He, yeah. He only toured during the summer. Right. Stevie was off school. Right. It's one of the funny stories is they were touring in a van, and uh, there was a gig there playing in Baltimore, and they had parked the van. Uh, in, in a road that accessed the, the uh, arena, and Stevie got in the driver's seat and asked Bob to teach him to drive. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, when Stevie started recording, he the first thing he did, he invited Bob to play with him on. Uh, they did a cover, a Beatles cover song on "We Can Work It Out," mm-hmm. and then. Somehow I got a little mixed up. Of course, he then subsequently recorded Science Sealed the Motor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, Bob was puzzled by Stevie had him record that instead of Jamerson. And he mentioned it to Jack Ashford when he was in Jackson. That's Stevie like your son. <laughs> and it was just that simple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I can't. Off the top of my head, I can't think of another Stevie tune that Bob played on. I don't believe he did either. It was right. just signed sealed. You're right. He did not. Yeah. Obviously, the stuff with Marvin Gaye, he did multiple tracks. 
Um, did the, a lot with the temps, and of course he did, you know, Smokey's Tears of a Clown. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. That that that's one of my favorites. That doesn't get as much of attention uh, as much as Sign Sealed or, or Mercy Mercy Me. Uh, Tears of a Clown's a great song. I mean, yeah, Bob oh, yeah. sounds great it, on it. It was a kind of side story, which wasn't too. Uh, Happy a story. Uh, Bob and the group, the Funk Brothers, were playing for. I forget who the producer was, and the, all the musicians. Bob, um, probably it was heading this issue. Wanted to get a raise in how much of the being paid. Yeah, each song they played. So Bob goes to the producer and asks if they can get a raise. That they'd all appreciate it and would like to have it. It was a small amount. They weren't paid a lot of money for some back then. Well, that producer went to the other musicians and asked them if they agreed with that, if they wanted more money on a sweet song. Mm-hmm. And they chickened out. They really? Yeah. And they said no. So that producer fired Bob. Mm. When Smokey heard about it, Smokey came to his rescue. Really? He said, no, keep him. Do not fire him. Oh, that's Do awesome. Man, I never heard that one. So it was yeah, right around that time from uh, uh, what year roughly was this? Was this oh, around man. the year of Tears of a Clown? It would have been... Um, it would have been like about 1970. Okay. Thereabouts, give or take. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of when that that little revolution was happening in Motown Records with the musicians wanting credit on the albums and wanting more money and uh, mm. to kind of get some salary pay. And I've, I've read about what Jamerson was getting uh, financially after that. But then it wasn't too much. It was only a couple of years later that uh, Motown would move to L.A. Right. And seventy two, I think. Yeah, I think it was seventy two. And and your brother Bob didn't. Bob went back to the New York area. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the sessions he played before he joined Motown uh, were for producers who came east with their artists. Okay. and knew they could get the Funk Brothers backing up their songs. Yeah. So uh, a couple of the producers, when they knew that Bob wasn't going out to L.A. to follow Motown, told them to come east. And they would, yeah. They would get him to work. And they uh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then so how long? Let's go back to Detroit for a second. So you and your brother are both in Detroit. And um, how long? How long did you live there? How? Because you weren't there as long as Bob was. Oh no, no! I I went there in '57, and I came home two years later. Okay, it was just the beginning, the end of '59. Okay, because I got a job right away in Pittsburgh in '60. Okay, in the airline industry. I'm sorry. In the airline industry. No, at that time, it was a, a, a brand new Hilton hotel that opened up. In oh, okay. Um, I was 
I went, I was in the military, I was in the National Guard and was called on to active duty. But I, yeah, and, and I uh, couldn't go back to the job in the hotel, so I got the job in the airline industry in 63. Mm-hmm. And then um, when I got into sales, uh, it was 66 that I was sent to Detroit. Okay. Okay. And, uh, it, it, it was great being there uh, for some reasons, although otherwise it was a tough tour of duty. The weather was horrendous. Mm-hmm. Uh, the winters were terrible, and also the riots occurred at that time. So um, I was only there a couple of years, and then I transferred to Philadelphia. Okay. Okay. Did you, uh, were you, did you get, did you get some time to hang with Bob while you were there again? Or well, were you guys just both kind of busy professionally? Well, I was going to say we were both so busy Him with his music, me with my job. We got, we spent very, very little time together during those two years that I was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Wouldn't happen. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I get it. Even with all the technology now, you know, like my brother lives a couple of miles from me and you know, we don't see each other that often. Uh, right. You know, even with all the ways there are con- with to connect and stuff, we're both just busy. Um, so I, I can only imagine what it would have been like back then without all the technology and ways to, to connect. Um, was your brother playing live around Detroit during these areas or was he mainly just in the studio? Mostly studio. Okay. Very little live at that time. Yeah. Um, a lot of live when it was with Royal Tones. Yeah. Uh, they were um, a very popular uh, group playing clubs mm-hmm. constantly. Okay. Always drew good crowds. And that's before, um, that's when I was first there. Yeah. From 57 to 60. Okay. Um, I would go out and watch them every time I could, attend their practices. I had a lot of time to spend with him. Yeah. During that phase. Did your brother ever speak to having a preference about playing in the studio versus playing live? Did he prefer one over the other? Never heard him say that he did. Okay. Um, I have to believe once he started playing in the studios and his reputation uh, got around, he probably preferred that. I don't think he had time to play with groups. Sure. Uh, at appearances, he was doing so much recording. Yeah. I think he wanted Tara Sherman's studios using so much they put cut in the studio. So yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. It's like a doctor or something, you know, just going to sleep it off for a couple hours before back to work. Right. Exactly. That's, that's, that's insane. Uh, so now, now you're in Detroit and it's, uh, what years were, did you just say? 66, 67 for me? Yeah. Oh, no, it was, um, Yes, 66 through 68. Okay, 68. Yeah, right. So your brother's, your brother's staying busy uh, at Motown. 
um, when he goes back to the East Coast and to New York, where were you living then? Because that happens when Motown Records breaks up right. in 72. Bob goes back to the New York area. Um, where were you at that time? Where were you in 72? Then, well, from 68 to 72, I was in Philadelphia. Okay. And then at some point in time in 72, I want to say it was earlier in the third, early half of the year, I transferred down to Washington, D.C. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 72. And uh, I was there for the rest of my career. Yeah. Um, until I retired. Yeah. And then, but, but Bob was kind of all around there. He was in New York. Then he went down into Nashville. Uh, yeah, he so he was did. kind of all around that. I forget what year it was. Um, and what caused him to move was the fact that a lot of the music you, you all recall turned to um, the, the, not the instruments, not live. Yeah, yeah. recorded stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, so that caused him to just go elsewhere to another music capital. What, what would it this maybe like 80s, early 80s, when like all the synthesizers really started coming into play? Yeah, I think about that time. I'm, I forget exactly what year, but about that time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um and so when he's in New York and kind of down into Nashville, what's, what's your relationship with, uh, with him like now? Are you guys, have you reconnected? Are you kind of tighter, uh, you in more yeah. communication? Yeah, um, um, we were more in touch. Uh, he was so busy mm -hmm. in New York um, that we were rarely in touch. But, okay. So once we got to Nashville, I heard a lot more from him. Yeah. I remember uh, when he was still in New York, of course, he was living in, over in New Jersey. I, I had a business meeting up in New York City, and I decided, gee, I hadn't seen him for a while, so I was getting in touch with him. Yeah. And um, he said, yeah, we'll meet. And uh, I'm waiting in the city. We, we figured out a place we would meet, and I'm standing on the corner and waiting for him and all of a sudden i hear and of course it's, it was busy it may have even been very close to times square all kind of noise sure. traffic, people and i hear my my nickname as a as a teenager was crunch okay the family never forgot it and i hear this noise yelling <laughs> noise Yelling crunch. I look at <laughs> He's like a half a block away. That's such a strong voice. <laughs> well, That's the great. darn thing was, and we were sitting there in a the restaurant, and it just dawned on me we hadn't seen each other for five years. Wow. Yeah. You know, he, yeah. May, as well, he may as well have been on the other side of the world at, right. during that time frame. Sure. So, he was so busy. Matter of fact, he he um, after our luncheon, he had a he had a session date and took me to the studio. Oh, cool! What uh, what session was it? Do you remember? You know I I don't remember who yeah. it was. 
Uh, all I do remember is they're starting, all the musicians are in the studio and uh, practicing. And when I hear him play a, a riff that I had no idea you a bassist could play, you could play that on a bass. Yeah. Yeah, it just blew me away. Of course, I thought he was showing off for me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I needed to impress his brother. Which reminds me of, of a story when he uh, he started doing a lot of work in Philly for Tom Bell, mm -hmm. the producer. And um, Tom had an act, a guy, a singer he was working with. And he told the singer, he said, I've got a new bass player for him. And the singer wasn't very happy to hear that. He said, I don't know about that. Then in the studio, he hears Bob practicing a few notes. He says, oh, yeah, this is going to work out. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Uh, I remember you told me we talked about this on the phone, and I remember that your brother was interested in doing some writing and was writing a jingle or like commercial for the airline company you were working for. And I remember um, that's kind of a cool story because of how it all ties in with itself in a certain way. So tell that story. Tell the story about Bob. Oh, sure. Yeah. He had uh, gotten into doing jingles. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess the, the session work, the recording session work slowed down a little bit. And he did quite a few, a lot of jingles. He was actually writing and submitting jingles to companies. Okay. So he gives me a call and says, you know, uh, I'd like to do some commercials for your airline. How do I go about doing that? Yeah. I told him, I said, well, you know, our ad agency does that. But I knew our, our director of advertising very well close relationship and our VP of sales and advertising I was working for had a good relationship. So I said, look, just do this. You can see, here's the guy, send some, send something to him. It was a director of advertising. And I said, by the way, my boss, the VP, loves the oldies, and so did I. And we kind of hit it off over how we both enjoyed talking about the oldies, yeah. uh, you know, from the 60s. And uh, so he sends a, a, I want to say, three, at least three, maybe four jingles mm -hmm. to the director of advertising, who calls me in to his office to listen to him. And I knew right away it was wrong. Yeah. And, and the, the 50s, the 50s theme jingle, was spot on. Okay. You know, right out of the fifties. Yeah. Um, it was so cool. So the director takes the jingles, the tapes to the VP. And it turns out a couple of days later, he calls me into his office to listen to them. He didn't mm -hmm. know I had heard them. And uh, he says, you gotta hear this. And he loved, he loved the jingle, yeah. the fifties jingle. Well, we could not use the advertising. Okay. Senior VP 
heard that jingle and said, I have an idea. And decided to use that jingle, put lyrics to it about the airline, and do a routine, a dance routine, um, all of the temptations of yeah. annual marketing conference. <laughs> okay. The end of the conference, it was like the final act. Yeah. And the employees went absolutely berserk. That's awesome. Um, and they loved it so much. So yeah. the next year, the, the female staff members put together a routine and presented it at the annual marketing conference. <laughs> and then the next year, it became a talent show. <laughs> all of the employees performing different. Yeah. Acts. I it love it. It was just a, amazing. It last and became it became done year after year after yeah, year. Yeah, kind of a tradition. Everybody looked forward to it. It was it was a real morale booster. Yeah, and and, and um, just tied tied us together, you know, and bonded the whole group. <laughs> yeah, and after. After speaking with you and uh, the few times we have and, and speaking with Joe, Bob's son, just how how big of a heart Bob had for for people. And I love that his work maybe didn't get commercial attention, you know, for the jingle, but kind of the spirit and the heart of Bob still came through and unified people and could cause people to dance and celebrate and, and have fun and yeah. kind of unite them, uh, in a, in a certain way, because everything I've learned about Bob from talking with you and Joe is he wasn't, he wasn't chasing limelight. You know, he was, yeah. he was in it for the integrity and, and doing right by people and working hard. Um, and I like I like that airline story because I feel like so many of those same attributes come through in that story um, about connecting people. And it, it didn't get outside attention, but the people who it affected, it affected them in a very kind of intense, for the lack of a better word, intense way. Uh, it really it really changed the dynamic of the people that were that were on the inside. Yeah. And I think that from what I've learned from speaking with you and, and Joe, like that was, that was just the spirit of Bob Babbitt. And I think yeah, that's, it, I like the it, correlation in that story. It, well, it really had an effect on our employee. Yeah. A very positive. Effect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, he, was, he was a, and he was pretty humble, laid back. And you're right, he wasn't looking for stardom. And at one point, I remember his wife, Ann, telling me, um, I don't know exactly when this was, and said he felt like he hadn't accomplished anything. Mm -hmm. So he, he felt he hadn't accomplished anything, but he ended up with uh, how many awards? Um, you know, he played. Played on over 200 top 40 hits, uh, which sold or, or, and uh, won 25 gold and a couple of platinum awards. Um, was given a lifetime achievement award from 
Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the mayor named that, uh, proclaimed it Bob Babbitt Day. Oh, what day is it? What day is Bob Babbitt Day? Ah, I'm not sure what day it is. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. What's, uh, um, when I spoke with Joe, I spoke with Joe on March 23rd. And March 23rd just coincidentally happened to be the anniversary of the last time Bob performed. Okay. He, on American Idol. Oh, right. Was, yes. uh, yeah. And I've, I've been trying to find the video of that. I'm sure Joe has it. I should email Joe. Um, but I, I wanted to find the video of that. I haven't found it yet. But it may, may even be on YouTube because I've seen it recently. Okay. Somewhere. I was looking for it on YouTube, but then like, you, I mean, you know, as soon as you type American Idol into YouTube, <laughs> you get everybody oh. who's ever auditioned in every, uh, every right. season. So I'm still kind of sifting through looking for the performance with Bob, but I thought that that was, uh, I, I liked how that kind of just happened to work out that, uh, I got to speak with mm-hmm. Joe on the kind of the anniversary of his last performance. Um, Cool. Uh, yeah, Joe. Joe had mentioned some things like that too about how how Bob was feeling about himself uh, and his career, and and I know that that was actually a big one for him to get recognized on television on American Idol. That's why I bring it up, actually. Um, well, you know when when Standing in the Shadows and Motown came out, of course, all all the guys, the Funk Brothers, finally got recognition. Sure. And people knew them, but even before that, uh, I have a couple of quotes that stick with me. One by Rick Suchow, who was a writer from Baseball Magazine, who said that uh, he says probably safe to say that um, 365 days a year, every minute of the day. I get choked up when we try to tell this story. Yeah. There's a song being played by Bob Babbitt pumping out of the radio somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's touching somebody somewhere right now, even while we're yeah, uh, while we're talking now. You know, somebody's listening to him. I Googled him, you know, once in a while, just Google and see what pops up. And I was on Wikipedia and I find this um the story about a guy, a musician, composer by the name of Harris Fire, spelled uh, F-Y-R-E, and Harris was a trombone player and he uh, wrote some music, he partnered, partnered with a, a singer, a young lady, and they eventually became an item and married. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, he decided to switch to the bass. And he tells the story on Wikipedia that uh, Bob became his role model. Mm-hmm. He, um, he said, he, after all, you heard the guy every 15 minutes on the radio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, he adopted a, a um, mantra for when he did a session. Yeah. And he said, I now baptize you. <laughs> in the name of the thunder, the song, and the and the holy grove. <laughs> he said one of his one of the groups he wrote for were the Sledge Sisters. 
Okay. Sledge, yeah. Sister Sledge. Sister Sledge, that. right, yeah. And um, he went to one of their first sessions to play the bass. And he said, it so happened there were two basses. Give me another. Mm-hmm. And he was surprised that there were two basses. But that was not uncommon. Sure. Um, and uh, he said, well, the other bass player, baptized better than we could. <laughs> of course, it turned out to be Bob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he said, you know, there's good, there's be- there's better, and then there's Babbitt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bob, Bob was underrated i think still you know in the in the trajectory not trajectory in the history of the base um i i think he's i think he's he's known but i I think most people listen to a lot of that stuff and just assume it's jamerson because very true because jamerson is so attached you know like when you think of motown bass like the first thing that pops up is jamerson uh mentally you know and so I think most people just assume it's just, ah, oh, that's James Jamerson. It's Motown. It's Jamerson. Um, and Bob, Bob played on so much great stuff that it's, um, and now, and like I've spoke with Joe, like I can all read printouts of things of like things people say that Bob has played on that is clearly not Bob, you know, and I've talked to Joe about some of them. He had such a distinct style that you can, just yeah. listen to it very easily and like almost right off the bat. There's a couple that would be difficult to tell. Some early Jamerson, when Jamerson wasn't playing a lot of notes yet, um, <clears throat> some of those might be confusing. But other than that, like Bob had such a specific sound and I think was, and I don't know, like I've spoke with you, had he was kind of all the other guys of that time period, uh, Jamerson, Donald Duck Dunn, Tommy Cogbill, um, you know, even, even David hood, who I spoke with last week, the down in muscle Shoals, uh, Bob was kind of like, he had a little bit of all of them. Like he could kind of do some of the Jamerson thing, but he was doing what duck was doing. Tommy Cogbill was kind of like that, you know, like David hood had his own thing. It was more along the lines of Duck Dunn. Um, But Bob had just this really relaxed feel. And it's this, the feel Mm -hmm. is the signature in Bob's playing. Just a really relaxed feel. That that was, um, and he always said, once in a while he'd get interviewed and they'd be asked, what would he tell new young bass players just learning and he would say, don't overplay. Stay yeah. in the groove. Yeah. Um, satisfy your soul. You'll know in your heart and love your music. So that was his mantra. That's how he played. And that was, that was his personality. Yeah. Really. Yeah. And I think yeah. um, the time I've got to spend with you and Chuck, like really, excuse me, you and Joe, um, really learning more about him as a person and then going back and listening to him more. It's the connection between his personality and how he would interact with people. Uh, 
kind of the character he would carry himself with and uh, all that, like it can all be heard in his playing. And it's, yeah. it's been really nice to go back and listen to him play again. Um, yeah. I, like, I, over time, I, I felt that I got more familiar with his playing, despite my lack of musical talent, <laughs> uh, that I could recognize when he was playing. Yeah. Every once in a while, a new song would come out, and I'd say, mm, that sounds, that's got to be Bob. Yeah. And, and it was. Yeah. And there, there were three songs that I remember so well that I thought I knew it had to be him where the uh, After 11 by Andy Bergkopf were big. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the Kenny Nolan did a couple of songs. He did a couple of Kenny, I Like Dreaming. And then one, I'm, I'm at the movie watching um, Ray, uh, the movie Foul Play. Foul Play? I forget the stars. It was a bit at the time. But the, the theme song and sung by Barry Manilow is uh, ready to take the chance again, which goes okay. along with the, the, the music plot. I'm at the movie and I say, oh my God, that sounds like Bob. Well, it was. And okay. it, did, it was, it got an Oscar nomination for that song. It I just win. looked it up. Uh, it 1978. Uh, with Goldie Hawn, Chevy Chase, Dudley Moore. Yeah, I was going to say Chevy Chase, yeah. Yeah. I don't know this movie. Pretty cool movie. Good. Enjoyable. Okay. But, but Bob's on the Bob's on the Barry Manilow track. Yeah. That's uh, kind of the single for the film. Right. Okay. Came out as a single for them. Interesting. And he, he did several uh, movie tracks. Okay. Well, or or and or there were songs he played on. Right, that they were would get used in, in the movie. Sure, sure. And then he would work early on in New York with Tim Curry quite a bit. Um, of course, what was it? Oh my gosh, what's the famous movie star that, that's always played at midnight, and folks come dressed up as characters in the movie. Rocky Horror. Yes, Rocky Horror Show. He played that soundtrack. Okay. And did a lot of um, sessions with Tim and performances, and actually wrote some songs for Tim that oh, okay. Tim recorded. Oh and wow! I didn't. I didn't even know about that part of his uh, occupation. Yeah, he composed some things. Um, um I uh, when speaking with Joe. And I don't want to keep referencing that too much because I want people to just hear things from Joe. But um, when your father passed, that had a profound effect on Bob. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like it would the whole family, but because of the nature of uh, that, that changed a lot of things for Bob. How did, did Bob ever speak to you about that? Now, what you you said this, you're talking about when he got sick or when, when your father passed away. Oh, our father passed away. Yeah, when your father okay, passed yeah. away, that had a big, that had a really big impact on Bob. Well, one of the issues, of course, that made that impact big 
besides the fact of losing our father, sure, he was only fifty years, fifty-one. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Uh, that my, our dad passed away on Bob's birthday. Right. Right. So, and that had a big, that had a huge effect yeah, on um, yeah, yeah. Bob that, uh, and Joe talks a little bit about that. Did Bob ever talk to you about that? Or how did Bob, how did you see Bob uh, handle grief and, you know, kind of deal with that, that loss? Uh, how did how how did the family do? Did the family kind of bond closer together during this time? Well, I've also seen. I'm in, not sure. I, I can't say that I detected or saw any change in Bob. Um, at, at the time, at, we had gotten a little bit older and started drifting, not not apart. Sure, but. Just but your own lives. different worlds. Yeah. You know, the year and a half in difference in our ages kind of had us both in different behavioral patterns with different crowds, different friends. So right. we weren't as close together as we were later, much mm. closer later when I was up there in Detroit with him. But um, yeah, it affected us, it affected our life. We had to, we were forced to move out of our house into um, much less expensive housing on the other end of the town of the city. So that part was physical, but it also changed us in our behavior and you know, our lives yeah. quite a bit, quite a bit. And um, our mother was was a heroine. I mean, she went to work to support the family. Oh, really? After after your father passed, mom was right. the breadwinner. Yeah. Um, and of course, we worked. Bob and I worked as much as we could. But how old was your mother when your father passed? Roughly. If your dad um, passed at at fifty one, like what was the age difference? <laughs> between your parents? She's a great question. I'm not sure I've, I've ever even thought about that. <laughs> she would have been in her 40s. She was younger than he was. Okay. But not much younger. She was probably in her late 40s. Okay. So maybe somewhere between three to five years, somewhere in there. No, no more than that, yeah. Yeah, right. okay. And then what was she doing uh, as a job to support the family? She was working as a nanny okay. for her family. I remember being that one of her jobs um, or doing house cleaning. Okay. And she got a steady job at the grade school near where we live as a teacher's assistant. Okay. Um, so she's always doing something. You sure. Working. Yeah. You know? And she was doing her Hungarian music thing as well at the time. Right. She, she became a a, 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 a MC and DJ at that radio station. Radio station we used. To oh wow! Race music. Yeah. Because they had nationality programs. They had right. a we weekly Hungarian day program on a Sunday. <laughs> she and her good friend, the piano player, 
would would host that program and play Hungarian music. And every once in a while, she would sing, and her friend would play the piano and back her up. Nice. Anyway, she kept very busy. It was amazing. Was there a big Hungarian? Po- I mean, was there? I mean, yeah, was there a big Hungarian population there? I don't know how big it was, but there definitely was a Hungarian population. I mean, it seems like there'd have to be enough to have a radio program dedicated to the yeah, culture. Right. And in fact, the church, the neighborhood we moved to had a Hungarian Presbyterian church we attended. Okay. So there were a lot of Hungarian people in that area and a Hungarian club. Uh, there were a few around the city and one of them was right there in that neighborhood. Okay. Um, we didn't go there very much. Um, to the church? It goes to your question. There was, there was definitely a Hungarian population. Right, in right. In that area. <laughs> was was uh, spirituality or religion, or however anybody would want to think about it, was that a part of your childhood? Did you guys attend church regularly or on yeah, cultural? Okay. Yeah. And uh, to this day, how many years later, I say the bedtime prayers my mother taught us. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Have uh, you passed them on to your children? I'm sorry? Yeah, have you passed those same prayers on to your children? Um, yeah, interesting that I haven't, and neither did my wife. Okay. We weren't agnostic. We were just... Yeah. It just didn't happen. Just, Is your yeah. wife Hungarian? Oh, no, she's Scottish. Okay, okay. For her background, yeah. Yeah. She's Scottish. Okay. Um, so then growing up, did I'm kind of fascinated by the Hungarian thing. Was there, did you have a lot of Hungarian peers? Like when you guys were, you know, maybe you and Bob being like six, seven neighborhood friends, were they Hungarian? Did you get to yeah, share that? I, I don't remember any of them being Hungarian. Okay. Uh, and, and even in my lifetime during my career, I don't, I don't remember meeting any Hungarian right. work uh, associates. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that doesn't seem like uh, a culture from any place I've lived, by the way, that really bands together the way other cultures kind of band together. Uh, You know, with like kind of all congregating in specific parts of the city and stuff like that. Uh, I've never known Hungarian. Like I've known some people who honestly, I don't know if I've known anybody who's full Hungarian. (laughs) Uh, I know some people that are part, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting culture. Because it's interesting to me because I don't know that much about it. You know, Bob recorded a CD of songs, and he mm-hmm. titled the CD "Gypsy from Jupiter." Okay, he got that title from an article written by a Hungarian guy, and she titled his his article "Gypsy from Jupiter." Oh, and his article was about how strange the language is, how mm. difficult if you want to try to learn it. Um, in fact, our mother never taught us the language. One of the big reasons was that um, she didn't speak English when she started grade school, first grade. Okay. Her parents were both Hungarian. That's all they ever spoke. Yeah. So when she got to school, she had 
toughest time because she couldn't speak English. Hmm. So that's the, the reason she wouldn't teach us Hungarian, despite you know playing all Hungarian music. She right. wants to know English when we got to school. Sure, sure. Yeah. Is that is that something that your brother was? Um proud of necessarily was he very was he i mean because he's both he's not you, you know you guys aren't obviously you know uh you're not 100 hungarian you're hungarian and slavic so was there a culture that that bob identified with more between your mother and father did he or was it kind of just not not an issue to him and he was going about his business well we identify with hungarian more because my father despite he was uh being from Slovakia. His family lived just across the border from Hungary, and he, okay. spoke, he spoke Hungarian. Okay, so um, there was a big Hungarian presence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and if they didn't want, the, mom and dad didn't want us to know what they were talking about. They spoke, <laughs> <laughs> they spoke how how Hungarian, did, Hungarian. did you ever catch on? Did you ever learn the language to catch on to see if mom and dad are uh, yeah I, I, complaining I, I, about I you guys? I learned a couple words, but I couldn't understand anything. What they were <laughs> yeah, <about. laughs> that, that's a good. I think all parents should have another language. Like they, yeah. all parents should. Soon as soon as parents have children, they should learn another language, just so that uh, they can, you know, talk in front of their children without traumatizing the children. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Um, I would tell you, by the way, that. Uh, we talked earlier about how strange my father's name was. Yeah. It's a rocky name, and it was pronounced Kranyak. Yeah. And I guess I told one of my uh, work associates about my background. We were talking about our backgrounds, and that my father's name was Kranyak. Well, they dubbed me Kranyak. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's come full circle. It's come full circle. I, I call him on a phone that answers, Kranyak. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You got Kranyak, he got Babbitt. <laughs> you guys are, everybody's grabbing a different last name here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Joe, Joe had a, Joe told me about that. He was, he was able to tell me how the, the last name kind of evolved just from nicknames. Um, at, at what point did it, did it start to make, that it wasn't weird to call your brother by a different last name or like at what point oh, did you boy, mind yeah. did you remember reading it and you're like oh yeah that's bob you know, you know and you started to get used to it i i don't think i started using babbitt really a lot regularly until um the the, the motown was with motown and, and the documentary came out okay and it became became publicly known as Babbitt. Yeah, uh, I went to meet him. He and the the Funk Brothers came to D.C. To, I think it was National African American Month, and they met with President George Bush. Okay, uh, and so I met him at the airport. And he was going back to Detroit. We were sitting in a little small little restaurant bar like four or five seats and waiting for the flight then one of the northwest employees comes by and introduces himself and he says hello mr babbitt 
Nice meeting you. Yeah. Now, I think I think what happened, and by the way, when he goes through security, the security guard says, we know who you are. <laughs> I, I think apparently uh, anybody who's visiting the president, yeah. is, their names are given to uh, oh, sure. security. Uh, yeah, they're deeply uh, like they checked out. A, what airline they're going to be a passenger on, so they know the car. Sure. Sure. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> cool, man. Uh, any parting stories that you have that what are your some of your favorite stories of either Bob uh, in his childhood or Bob as a professional? Or what are what are some that you still hold on really close? I know you I went like through it. talking with you that you still you still get emotional when you listen to him play and when you hear him play specifically this the solo on scorpio uh yeah. that still means a lot to you yeah it's still played it's still you know, um i love reading the comments when um well what one, one of his son joe you know is managing his facebook fan page um and when he posts a song it, it, it it's on YouTube. Yeah. So I go to YouTube and I read, love reading the comments. Yeah. Uh, the, the comments are going to be about the group mostly, but every once in a while, um, people know who the bass player was, or they even ask, or they sure. think it's Jamerson, and somebody yeah. comes on and corrects them and says, no, it's, it's Babbitt. Um, There's a lot of I cool. A couple of um, stories. Well, he, he did. Um, of course, the Bass Player Magazine did two transcripts, one of Scorpio, they published a transcript now in when I came to Georgia. Okay. Um, I don't know if they've done more than one transcript for any bass player. They probably have. But I, he, they had an article um, back in, I want to say, 94. I know it's 94 because I'm looking at the notes. I have a copy of it. <laughs> um, that uh, was about by, about Gene Simmons. Oh, yeah, Gene, okay. I think Gene gave him a couple of opinions that Bob didn't agree with. He didn't he agree with some of it, but he wrote a letter. Bob wrote a letter to the editor, and uh, he said that he he had to ask how Gene could say no time he just felt moving around. But you didn't know what it was. To this day, Bob says one of the best sounds of history is the sound of Motown bass. You know, mm -hmm. Describe it a little more. But he says, although I agree with a few of the things Gene had to say, my overall reaction after reading this tough guy, rich kid, power trip comments that although I have not wrestled for years, I would like to turn him upside down by his ankles and make him a foul driver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> I never knew that. I never uh, had heard of that letter, that letter or uh, anything to the article, to the magazine. Yeah. That's fantastic. And I like the story. Uh, actually, Joe told me the story about what he was on the road. Uh, with other musicians, I didn't get the details where or when, 
mm-hmm. who he was playing for. But um, he and the drummer, uh, was it Chief Collins? Collins, Collins. Who was the drummer? They go back to the hotel and they want to, but it was late. Phil Collins? I'm sorry? Was it Phil Collins? No, not Phil. Oh. Not Phil. Another musician, but not Phil. And, and it was before that. Okay. Uh, they were starved and they wanted to have good steak. Mm-hmm. And they called a restaurant because uh, there wasn't much anything open, but it was light. And they, um, a guy comes over, he delivers the meal to them, and they, they specified they wanted steak. And the guy comes over with a tray of meal of food and your sandwiches. Mm-hmm. And sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> so Not at all they steak. Were, they were so angry. They were sitting out at the pool, by the way. And, and the, uh, the deliverer found where they were. And he went out to the pool to deliver that meal. And when they saw it, they picked them up along with the food and threw them in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, the guy in the food goes flying into the pool. <laughs> Did they ever get the steak? No, <laughs> I don't they got anything. Bummer. <laughs> they didn't even get the ham sandwiches. <laughs> it was a drag. <laughs> uh, Chuck, thank you so much uh, for reaching out and connecting with me. And uh, because because you reached out to me, I was also able to spend a couple. I don't even know how many times we've been on the phone now, but a few phone conversations that have all been lovely. Uh, I've gotten to connect with Joe. Um, thank you so much. This is this has been a real treat for me. I appreciate oh, you. In my pleasure, a treat for me too. Oh, cool. I thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Appreciate uh, it's it. my pleasure. This is a big deal. Uh, Bob, Bob is an important figure in in bass and a bass player that's very special to me. And this means a lot to me to connect with both you and Joe. So thank you. Well, thank you I so did, much. I really appreciate your recognition and and. Uh, promoting not promoting but uh, publicizing his talent sure sure yeah. my, my pleasure all right that was my talk with bob babbitt's brother there's so many bees there bob babbitt's brother chuck kreiner that was my talk with chuck kreiner um man Man, that's fantastic. I love I love hearing those old stories. Um, I love the one with Stevie. <laughs> that's funny. And from all the, the books I've read about Stevie, actually not books, book, book. I'm still working through a book about Stevie, actually. Um, you know, Stevie's, Stevie's always kind of a prankster. Uh, and I can only imagine that uh, there was a lot of joking around like that with Bob and Stevie on the road. Um, Stay stay tuned for the next episode uh, where we will hear from Bob's son, Joe Kreiner. But again, I cannot thank Chuck enough for for contacting me, for being willing to do this. Um, yeah, for for just all of it. It's this was a huge treat for me after talking with Chuck on the phone initially and then talking with Joe and doing doing the interviews. Um, 
with Chuck. It's fantastic. Great stories. And th- thank you again, Chuck, so much for taking the time to do this. Um, stick around for the next one. You can follow me uh, online at facebook.com backslash the Bay Shed, Instagram at the Bay Shed, Twitter at Bay Shed. Um, go to thebayshed.com, sign up for the newsletter. And I think that's all the uh, not-so-shameless not so plugs I have for the end of this. I think those are just shameful is what I think. I think those I, – I should feel shame. I should feel shame. Uh, <laughs> that's all I got, folks. Uh, I will catch you on the next one, and stay tuned for Joe Kreiner in a minute.